Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. So, here we are in a new year, and while we're still in what is essentially a lockdown, the isolation has done nothing to prevent the rumbling on of various potential political earthquakes, all with leadership as the common thread. Although, to be fair, this one is perhaps more of a small but regular tremor for Scottish Labour rather than an earthquake. Yes, with just four months to go before the Scottish Parliament election, Scottish Labour loses yet another of its leaders, its ninth since devolution. After a pretty fraught couple of years, when he really hasn't managed to break through in terms of anyone really knowing who he even is, Richard Leonard stands down, triggering yet another party leadership contest for the party that seems to just make a habit of losing elections, despite all the practice it gets on holding ballots of its own. The MSP and former MP, Anna Sarwa, who lost out to Richard Leonard last time around, has thrown his hat in the ring again, as has Monica Lennon. Annis is probably considered the front-runner at the moment, and that's despite Monica recently being named one of the most influential female politicians in the world for her work on period poverty. But given Labour's ability to pick winners, not, that kind of accolade will probably do her no good at all. We also have the Tories at Holyrood losing one of its former leadership contenders, with Michelle Ballantyne, who stood against Jackson Carlaw for leader and then quit the party after Douglas Ross was parachuted in as leader to take over from Carlaw a few months later, while Ruth Davidson continues to act as leader until Ross gets elected to the Parliament. Yep, keep up. Anyway, Michelle, God lover, has moved to the even darker side, joining Nigel Farage's party, Reform UK, as its Scottish lead. At least it gives Farage a seat in the Parliament. That's the Parliament that he always said he wanted to get rid of. And then there's the ruminations going on within the SNP, which faces almost daily calls for its leader, arguably the most popular political leader in the Western world, to quit over the machinations of how complaints about the party's former leader were handled by the Scottish government and who knew what when. But that internal sturgeon versus salmon turmoil clearly doesn't appear to be affecting her position in the polling. And the predictions of a clear run for the SNP at the election in May and the possibility of yet another SNP majority now becoming a bit of a given, really. But there could be tricky times ahead for Nicola Sturgeon, as the committee set up to do a deep dive into how her government got it so wrong in the way it handled complaints against Salmon delves even deeper. And of course, there's a separate inquiry into whether she broke the ministerial code by lying to the parliament, and it's now expanded its remit, which could cause her some worry. So her leadership looks at the same time completely unassailable and completely wobbly. But then that's Scottish politics for you. Meanwhile, COVID continues to dominate the news and while there was much room for optimism as we went into the Christmas period with news of vaccines coming from all over the place, the shocking number of people infected, the rise in hospitalisation and the sheer number of deaths just continues to put the fear in us all. Roll on the vaccines.
And on that note, this week I've interviewed Professor Devi Schroeder, who's the Chair of Global Health at Edinburgh University and has become a real feature in the media during the pandemic, giving us some pretty hard-hitting messages which are under the nickname of Dr Doom. But all along, she's sadly also been right, whether it be on closing the borders or getting track and trace right. In the interview, we talk about how that daily digestion of data has taken its toll on her, but also the way she's been treated on social media, which has been absolutely appalling. But we also talk about cake uh, and whether this pandemic is the big one. Enjoy. So, Debbie, this time last year, when for most of us, this was something we hadn't even really heard about, what were you doing and what were your plans for 2020? Well, actually, a year back, we were in early January. The health security community was already buzzing about this novel virus. It's called the Wuhan pneumonia cluster because we didn't know what was causing it. We didn't know if it was SARS or MERS or a novel influenza. But there was concern about the accelerating numbers, about China um, struggling with actually keeping a handle on it, You know, quite a strong state compared to some low-income countries. Um, as well as, you know, a few days from now, with just over 500 cases, China put 60 million people into lockdown, something we had never experienced before in recent history, that kind of quarantine. And so I think watching that emerge, we knew there was something really serious going on. So a year ago, I was doing British media trying to explain what was happening in China. The uncertainty, it's like looking through the fog, trying to understand what this was. Um, at the same time, now a year later, doing Chinese state TV media, trying to explain what's happening in Britain and the position that we're currently in and how we're trying to kind of move forward through the crisis. So if you could turn the clock back, I mean, how would you have tackled this pandemic? I guess with full hindsight and knowing everything we know now, you know, there's two things. One that China could have done and one other countries could have done. So I think the quickest way to stop looking back would have been the export of the virus. So China should have in December, once they knew they had something that was largely, you know, dangerous. They were struggling to control it, even with their strong surveillance systems in place. Um, They should have stopped flights out of the country. And so they put Wuhan into lockdown. So you couldn't go from there to other parts of China, but they did not stop flights going out of a major hub to the rest of the world. So in a way, by early to mid-January, the genie was out of the bottle. We already had infections in, you know, dozens of countries. And so then the burden changed to actually countries having them come in. And I think Taiwan is actually the gold standard here because they put in place first checks at their airports, testing, quarantine procedures. So your first line of defense is don't let the virus come in. Um, Once you do that, you are still going to have cases arising. It's such a SARS-CoV-2 is so infectious. So you have robust testing and tracing and quarantine procedures. So as soon as you have a couple cases, you immediately try to remove them, get them out of the population, isolate them before it becomes a larger issue. And then try to keep your economy open, try to keep schools open, try to kind of bubble yourself off. So I think the lesson, at least over the past 10 months, is the countries that pursued what you call zero COVID or just clear the virus, bubble yourself off from the pandemic, have done better because they've kind of artificially, you could almost say, created a world where the domestic economy can have a full recovery. COVID is at minimal negligible numbers. The health services are still running. But... At the same time, that means you can't be interconnected globally as much. And the countries that have stayed open, so Western countries, European countries, the states, have just experienced wave after wave after wave of this pandemic. 
Um, so I think that's one of the lessons looking back and in the future, I wonder how many countries will look at that. We are seeing it already with the new variant emerging in Britain, how quickly other countries moved to actually stop flights coming in and do that testing at the airports because they were so nervous about having a variant that was more transmissible. I mean, it does seem almost just unbelievable, really, that the two countries, the US, the UK, where perhaps the perception might have been that we were previously, we were the countries that were taking expertise to help other countries where there were pandemics happening, like Ebola. I mean, how have we got into this situation? Well, I think, I mean, the health security community, when we were looking at pandemic preparedness, and there were all these indicators in the UK and US always did really well, we were looking like things like lab capacity, diagnostic capacity, health services capacity, oxygen, beds, primary care. Um, and on those kind of basic metrics, the UK and US do really well. Um, Britain has one of the most advanced sequencing. We have good diagnostic capacity, um, usually. And so those were the kind of things we were looking for, because we didn't want to repeat of Ebola um, in West Africa, where they think the first case emerged in December, but it wasn't until March that anyone even knew it was Ebola. People just couldn't understand what was spreading. You had a huge delay of several months. Um, but I think what we've learned is actually that that has... A, you know, poor countries have done much better because in a way they overreacted, they ran faster, where richer countries like the UK and US have really struggled um, to get a handle on this. Um, I think partially due to, you know, not wanting to infringe on people's freedoms. So being very hesitant to put in any kind of measures that could be seen as draconian until absolutely forced to. I think lack of humility, just thinking it could never happen here. You know, that's just a poor income issue. It would never happen in a high income context. Um, and I think like a, a unwillingness to pivot away from kind of the flu model, which accepts a certain level of infection. I mean, even today, we still hear in the UK and the US, you know, scientists saying, this is going to become a seasonal infection and it's going to be every winter, we're going to have waves of this and we have to accept a certain number of COVID deaths like flu deaths. And I see all that, except that this virus with how infectious it is, how many people we have susceptible and the hospitalization rate means we're also accepting having lockdowns every winter to protect health services and I think that's just, I don't understand why we take that path when there's another path that we've seen has done much better that other countries have taken to stay open. When did you realize the gravity of what was happening here? Well, I think for me, I wasn't really worried about the UK or US. I mean, the worry was always, like if I think back to all my interviews in February, was poor countries. It was like, what is this going to mean in Haiti, um, where I've had a postdoc based, or Senegal, or South Africa, or, you know, Bihar, a really poor state in India, this is kind of where our team was looking and working on, which is places that really have no ability to have hundreds of ventilators, they have like the whole country has like two ventilators. Um, you don't even have, you have children dying of pneumonia, because they can't get oxygen at a on a daily basis. And all of a sudden, you have a COVID surge, how would they manage? And I think it was really in early March, when the UK abandoned the containment model and just said, well, we're going to move to mitigation, which means build your hospitals, prepare for this to run through. And that's when I kind of pivoted from doing more global work of actually working in low income countries and middle income countries to saying, actually, this is not what we've learned so far. This is going away from WHO advice. This is pivoting away from what we've learned. Because by January and February, we had learned a lot about this virus from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, from South Korea's experience with its first wave, from Hong Kong and Singapore, from what China had done. Um, so you could pivot at that point, and that's what Australia and New Zealand did. They pivoted in mid to late February based on that incoming information. But it seemed like in the UK, there was kind of like this idea that we just take it on the chin and it's uncontrollable. And so just keep as much running while we just accept the deaths accruing. And 
as a global expert, it just didn't seem correct to me based on what we had learned so far where we could control it. And there was stuff, things we could do to save human life, but also keep the economy open and not go into kind of a very draconian lockdown. How difficult is it for someone like you that that is saying these things, that knows that these things, and you're, do you feel sometimes like you're screaming into just the ether, really, that the politicians aren't listening, they aren't going with what you're saying? Well, I think there was two stages here. So first was like convincing the scientific community, because if you look back at Sage Minutes, and you have to remember in early March, you know, I was trying to figure out who was on Sage. Um, the scientific advisory group for emergencies in the UK, because I was not really plugged into UK policy. I'm more of a global expert. So I'm more, you know, on WHO advisory panels or even, you know, in the United States on global panels. So I'm more kind of an external looking expert where SAGE is very domestic looking. So I didn't even know who was on SAGE. I didn't understand what they were advising. Um, And so the first challenge was actually trying to kind of figure out when they said following the science, like, what is the scientific basis of what we are doing? And can I understand that better among my colleagues and also debate them to say, well, are we, why are we stopping testing instead of trying to get a huge program going? And why are we stopping contact tracing? And why wouldn't you want to kind of go into lockdown earlier to exit? Why would you delay lockdown when all other countries have gone early into lockdown? So that's been a challenge because, you know, in academia, you know, you work, a lot of the people who are making these decisions are extremely senior in a way you're challenging them. And so that's obviously a hard thing to do because I'm obviously, I'm a professor, but I'm probably a newer professor. I just became a professor, I think six years ago, there are people who've been professors for 20, 30 years. And so obviously there's a hierarchy issue of challenging the path, but I think the scientific community has moved. If I look at what SAGE is saying now or independent SAGE or generally my colleagues are all saying the same things. So I think like that was one thing, like getting us all onto the same page and we're all kind of saying suppress now, testing, tracing, you know, go into lockdown early, move fast, move hard, you know, move early. Even issues of border restrictions are now widely accepted. So I feel like we've moved. And the second thing is convincing politicians. Um, and I think they're actually, to be fair, like they are looking for answers. But I think the mistake has been trying to trade off the economy and health and saying, OK, we got to focus on the economy now. OK, now we need to focus on health without thinking well, actually, if we follow the scientific advice on health, we'll probably do better for our economy. And I think that's coming around now, too. That's more widely accepted. So we're kind of getting there. And this is why I'm not frustrated completely, because we've moved. If I think of how much in a year all the things that we were saying from February and March have happened, they have happened. They've just happened probably slower than I would have hoped. And we've also lost, you know, what is it, almost 100,000 people now in Britain to COVID-19, which is a real shame um, compared to other countries which have lost so few um, through the course of the last year. I think what surprises me there, Debbie, is I would have expected the politicians to come seeking you rather than you having to seek who you should be speaking to. I mean, was that the case? Well, the thing is, we have advisory bodies. And so the UK has an established kind of way of getting scientific input into how it makes its decisions. And this is a UK wide enterprise. So um, so SAGE advises all the devolved nations, it evolves across the UK, and that is a group of experts. And um, it was, I think, for historical reasons, because it dealt with things like bioterrorism and, you know, other po- poisonings and things like this, it was quite secretive. And that's where government went to get their scientific advice. So it wasn't like they were calling up, you know, random experts in the UK asking for advice. They had like a structure and they have a chief medical officer you know, down south, Chris Whitty, they have a chief scientific advisor, Patrick Vallant. So this was kind of the established structures of how ministers and politicians got their advice. 
And I think it was when I started to get more involved was in March, I, when I had done kind of several media interviews, kind of speaking out and just saying, I think maybe we might be making a mistake. I did a column in the Observer where I called this Britain's gamble, where I said, we're doing something, trying to go for herd immunity that you know, no one else is trying at this point. And even Sweden at that point hadn't really made that commitment. This is really a gamble because of all the unknowns and given there is a tried and trusted path. Um, and then it was at end of March that two things happened. First, that the Royal Society set up a group called Delve, um, which was a research group to feed into SAGE, the best international practice. And they asked me to chair that working group and to bring together best practice internationally and to feed that into SAGE. So that was like kind of when I could get involved in actually getting stuff down south in. And then um, in early April, the first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, set up a Scottish government COVID advisory group to tailor the advice from SAGE, so to work with SAGE, but to tailor it for the Scottish context. And that was chaired by Professor Andrew Morris. And I was invited onto that. And that became a direct route to try to get access to SAGE papers so I could actually read what was being analyzed in real time, but then also kind of feed that and shape that, hopefully, in the Scottish, uh, in a Scottish context as well. So had you had any contact with the Scottish government prior to that? No, not at all, actually, because as I said, like I'm an international expert and I've never worked on really domestic issues. Um, I get no funding from any Scottish bodies at all. My funding comes from European Union, Wellcome Trust, the National Institutes for Health Research down in London. And so I really was not very much involved in the Scottish context at all or involved with even domestic issues here. So this was all new to me. It was my first kind of move of actually trying to learn more about it and feed in things here, I was much more focused on our whole our team has been completely focused on low and middle income contexts. And I think what was interesting for a lot of us, particularly in the media, was here we had in you a global expert. Um, and, and sometimes you were being seen as the voice of doom rather than this is the person that can actually be giving us some good guidance here. Yeah, I mean, I still get it today. I mean, you know, people want to hear that things are going to be over tomorrow and they're going to get their lives back. And so, of course, I can imagine if I did a tweet right now that said the crisis is going to be over in three weeks, it'll go viral, right? Because that's what people want to hear. And people are so much and I'm desperate to hear that, too. I wish someone would say that, that I trusted. Um, and so to say really hard messages, I remember in February, I think I did a BBC Newsnight interview at the end of February when Italy had just started going into their lockdown. And they said, what will you think happen here? And I was like, well, we're going to have the same thing happen. We're going to have schools shutting. We're going to have workplaces shutting. We're going to have you know mass events stopping. And at that point, even to mention that large conferences would be stopped was, or sports matches wouldn't go ahead was seen as complete blasphemy. They thought I was crazy. I could see like they were like, what is she talking about? Um but I was trying to look ahead and say, it's not even having to see the future. It's just looking at other countries. And this is like the way the pandemic's played out. It's almost like a time machine. And so all you have to do is look to other countries and understand how something has played out there. And then you understand how it's likely to play out here and how we can avert it. It's an experiment in real time. Um, and so I think that's how I've tried to kind of give my guidance, which is I just look at other places, whether it's school reopenings or universities, or um, you know other aspects and say, how, how can we learn from other contexts which have gone through this a month earlier or two months earlier to make sure we're ahead of it and we're not behind it? How comfortable have you felt as an academic that's a, you know, a global expert in this and everybody, everybody in the street has an opinion um, on COVID and what we should and shouldn't be doing? I mean, how have you managed to deal with that kind of level of interaction which you're clearly getting on social media 
Um, well, I actually understand it because, you know, when I've worked on other issues, whether it's World Health Organization reform or World Bank financing or even Ebola or Zika or different influenzas, it hasn't really affected people at this level. I mean, this is intimately affecting people's lives. Um, I don't know anyone who's not affected by this. And to be fair, at any part of the world either, everyone's having different kind of situations, whether it's better or worse, but they're trade-offs. Yes, you can be in New Zealand and going to live music and pubs and bars, but if you want to see your mother who lives in Japan or in the United States, you can't really leave, right? So um, I think these, the kind of, I understand it, I think at a very profound level, whether it's having people who have had COVID. This is, I mean, I guess the interactions I've had with people who have had COVID are still suffering from it or someone they love has died of this or is very ill. Then there are people who have had cancer or surgeries delayed who are upset about this or frustrated or you know are worried about their outcomes. Then you have unemployment, businesses suffering, especially nightlife, pubs, bars, hospitality, wondering how do they survive? And I really sympathize because these are people who want their businesses to survive. They've invested them. A lot of self-employed people, you know, business owners, they completely want to abide by the restrictions, but they're like, how do I keep my business alive with this kind of, these kind of restrictions and trying to kind of get access to economic support. And then there's lockdown and all the accompanying costs, even having school shut, you know, parents I meet of children who are disabled, who are struggling, who say they don't know how to get through each day with, um, with being in such restrictive kind of so, so little support. Um, so I profoundly understand it. And I'm always happy to listen when people want to tell me about their situation. I have no power. So I feel like that's the only thing people tell me and kind of want me to fix it. And I'm like, well, I can't fix it, but I can listen. I can sympathize. I can shape, be that into make sure my work is done with empathy, that we listen to frontline voices, that yes, numbers are important and scientific evidence is important, but so are anecdotes. And so are what we listen and learn from people who are suffering from this pandemic all over the country. When you're so immersed in the reality of, the, I guess, the brutality of this virus and all kinds of um, levels that you've just described, do you have to compartmentalise things that you know um, and real life? Well, I think, um, you know, the thing is it has been all encompassing and I've had to find just a balance, which is kind of accepting what I can do and what I can't do. Um, I can listen, I can collect the best evidence, I can try to inform people, I can give hard truths, I try to always answer factually and honestly to the best of my ability, though I could get things wrong and I fully admit when I've gotten things wrong. Um, but at the flip side, you know, I don't, I can't shape that much. So sometimes it does, I do feel helpless because I wish there was more that we could do um, to, to help and shape people. So I think it's kind of both an acceptance of, you know, what we can do and what we and what we can't do and just kind of trying to kind of walk away at a certain point. Um, but it is hard because I feel like I do get lots of letters from people asking for help and I don't really know how to help them. People who have relatives in care homes and haven't seen them for a long time and there's no easy solution there, right? Because until we got, you know, testing into care homes and now vaccinations, um, we knew care homes are really risky situations. So it's kind of like a lose-lose. And now with schools, we know we need kids back in school. We know children are suffering. We know educational inequalities are increasing. At the same time, we know that just opening schools is not the real issue. The issue is how do you ensure safety in schools and that it's sustainable. We don't keep having cases and bubbles being sent home of children because their cases emerging and that teachers feel safe and don't think that they're going to be infected. 
especially teachers who go back to those who are vulnerable or parents who have children who are asthmatic or concerned. So it's so complex. So I think it's that which is everything at the surface seems simple until you start to unpack it and realize the complexity behind it. It is so all-encompassing when you describe it like this. I mean, is this why you wanted to study public health in the first place? Well, hopefully not for something like COVID-19. <laughs> no, no. I, mean, I, mean, I, I guess I, it's about the impact. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I, I mean, um, I feel very passionately since a very young age that health is one of the things that if you don't have your life quality suffers and, you know, people focus a lot on wealth, which of course helps your health, um, or they focus on, you know, power. And actually at the end of the day, it's like, for me, it's about, are you healthy? Are you able to live your life in a fulfilling way? Because we know if people are ill, people who are in chronic pain, um, that actually it affects your life quality. So public health is all about how do we keep people healthy and them out of hospitals and living a fulfilling life. So I feel very, it, I mean, it has been like a life's passion for me. I do it because I enjoy it, um, not because it's the job. I'm just lucky I have a job that supports me to be able to do this kind of work. But where does that come from? Where does that passion come from? Um, well, I think it comes, I mean, my father was quite ill when I was young. He was diagnosed with cancer um, when I was 12 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and um, and suffered for years with it. Um, you know, chemo, you know, um, blood mar marrow transplants, um, bone marrow transplants, you know, in and out of hospital remission and back again. Um, the thing about cancer is if it doesn't get you the first time, it will get you the second time or the third time. It just keeps coming back. It's relentless. So I think that really shaped me during my high school years, I guess you'd call it your secondary school years, and just made me realize, you know, you can have all the things in the world, but if you're not healthy, how it so profoundly helps you. And to be in hospital week after week is just brutal. Um, so yeah, I rose from that. And then I started in medicine. Um, and then I realized medicine is about treating people once they come into hospital. So incredibly important. If someone has cancer, they have access to the top oncologists and that they have access to the newest drugs. But the question that interested me is how do we try to ensure the conditions that people never get cancer in the first place? Um, how do we create the social conditions that people can make, you know, healthy choices in their lives, which is often down to time and wealth and ability, you know, your ability to be able to, to choose that kind of lifestyle. Um, how do we make sure that we don't have, you know, excessive drinking and excessive smoking, and we also build cities that are physically active. So it comes down to kind of how do we make people healthier, which is less about medicine and more about public health. It's kind of creating the conditions for a healthy life. Have you been scared through this pandemic? About COVID? Or... About you, yeah, about yourself and your family. Um, I think, I mean, the issue has been more about Probably not because I'm really privileged. So I in a job that I can work from home. The university has moved to remote teaching largely. Um, I can make choices to not have to expose myself to COVID-19 on a daily basis. Um, so I think actually I feel probably guilty more than anything else that a lot of the privilege that I have, other people don't have, especially, you know, grocery store workers who have been working through the first wave who often are in their 50s or 60s. Um, or healthcare workers, you know, those who went on to wards in March. So I got letters from former students of mine who were on wards in um, March who didn't have adequate PPE and were concerned about their own risk. And so I think kind of probably less scared about me because I'm in quite a privileged position and I'm aware of that and more about kind of the people who can't protect themselves. And we're seeing this now with, I think, the lockdown in London. There's so much shaming of individuals of, you know, like, oh, that person didn't comply and that person went for a walk. And, and I'm like, 
actually, probably a lot, if you look at who's getting infected, it's essential workers who are going into work because either they have to work or they lose their job or they don't earn. And fair enough, because actually you do give people the choice between you're not going to have any income, um, but you'll be safe from COVID or you need to go earn, but you possibly might get COVID. They're going to choose going to earn. We know that. And I think that's where I think we have to kind of shift the debate from individual shaming into saying, how do we actually make sure that even those going into work in essential workplaces are kept as safe as possible? On that whole shaming episode, I mean, you have taken some really horrible stuff on social media. How how has that affected you? And I mean, do you do you then stand back and try and understand why on earth people would say the things that they say to you? Yeah, I mean, it has been brutal. And I think it did affect me much more at the start because, you know, I had like a quiet academic life. You know, the, the harshest reviews I got were from my students um, who might say that lecture was boring or why did you give me that mark? Um, and even then I would kind of take it quite personally and and wonder how I could improve. Because I'm someone who always wants to think like, how can I be better? How can I do better? Um, how can I be more fair? Um, and to go from that to kind of some of the atrocious stuff you get on social media, all kinds of stuff. I mean, some of it's weirdly funny, like some motorcyclist from the Isle of Man called me, why is this bird on TV who waffles? I don't know if I'm allowed to use bad language, but basically waffles shit. And, and, um, and I was just like, what have I ever done to him? <laughs> you know, It's like for someone to show such aggression and also to work as a professor, I was just thinking, wow, how many years to have worked to like, got 18 million pounds in grants and articles in some of the top medical journals and done the slog and made it through Oxford and made it through Edinburgh, like really tough academic environments. And then you become professor and someone just calls you that random bird who waffles. And you're just like, and so you have to laugh exactly as you're laughing. And I think that's where I've come to where like, or, and I can't, people can't figure out, is she like a raging nationalist or is she a raging globalist? Is she part of the deep state? Is she the Illuminati? Um, is this part of some kind of cult? I mean, I've gotten all kinds of stuff all over the place. And so um, I just kind of try to come back and say, like, I'm not a hero. I'm not a villain. I'm not evil, uh, at least most of the time. My students might disagree. Um, and so, you know, what can I do? It is awful. But I think the thing I don't want to do is to say that women have to retreat because women really get the brunt of this. Um, women shouldn't retreat because they get, you know, red card basically they get hit on the pitch every time they're there and just kind of get bloodied every time you go out onto the pitch and so we have to keep standing up we have to keep going out there and we just have to keep a sense of humor I mean the people who know me know I'm not a bad person they know my intentions are pure they know I'm here to try to help um, and I think if many of the people on social media actually met me in real life and had a conversation with me they wouldn't find me a bad person they probably wouldn't say it's my face um, the things they say, but online just provides that layer of anonymity and people are angry and they're frustrated and it's easy to kick the scientists who are, that are visible um, rather than actually just say like, this is a really bad situation we're all in. That's really interesting what you just did as well as, as a woman, you listed your qualifications, which women tend to have, they feel they almost have to do to justify their position. I, you rarely hear a man saying, oh, yes, and I, this is the, these are all the qualifications I have to say who I am. Um, it's such a woman thing. Oh, well, I have to. I have to do that, of course, because otherwise people won't take me seriously. They're just like, yeah. who is this person? Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, having to kind of justify why you actually know what you're talking about. I mean, hopefully after the past year, I've built up a track record um, of actually that maybe she does have some idea of what she's talking about. Um, but I think constantly, of course, we have to constantly prove ourselves and constantly 
prove like, why do we deserve a seat at the table? Why do we have something worthwhile to say? Um, and that's important, I think, for younger women watching and girls, because if all you see on TV is, you know, and we saw this, I think, with the briefings in Westminster, I think there was like a number of weeks where it was just men. There was not any woman at any briefing. And then all the people arising, rising from stage were men and male professors. I mean, it kind of makes you think like maybe that's a world I can't ever enter where I think they need to see that there are there are actually quite a lot of female professors in public health. It is, I think, one of the more equal fields. There, just, there are a lot of us around um, and we support each other and help each other. And that's, I think, an important message to the next generation, to the girls who are looking and thinking, do I want a scientific career? Could I actually go into government? Could I do something better um, for the world through pursuing something in science or medicine or public health and like seeing that there are ways to make it through, even if they're not immediately visible? And of course, we also have a female political leader in Scotland, um, which kind of, I'll probably just add to your woes in terms of social media with this, these questions. But you've talked about leadership and how important, political leadership and how important this has also been within this um, pandemic. Do you think Scotland has done a good job because, or a better job um, or the same job? Or has there been any difference by having a woman um, as the first minister? I, well, I think, and of course I'm biased. I mean, obviously I've been involved through the advisory group since early April. I think it's done a much better job. I do feel much safer right now being in Scotland, knowing that there is a leader in charge who takes the health of the public incredibly seriously and takes her job really seriously and is hardworking. And um, I think across the political spectrum, I have not, I mean, and this is more my daily life, not social media, which I don't take as a reflection of real life, but in daily life, like anyone I speak to, regardless of what they believe or what party they support has said that, you know, she has done a remarkable job. She has done her daily briefings. She has been serious. She has been credible. Um, she has been, you know, trying to do the best for the country. She hasn't taken a holiday in weeks and months um, through the summer was here. And so I think like we have to give respect where it's due. Um, it's not a political point. It's a point about kind of showing up and doing your, your best for the country. And um, I'll take the heat for saying that. I don't mind. As I said, I, I will speak what I think is right. Um, and I think Scotland has tried its best, but um, from being kind of on the advisor group and what we can suggest and what we can't suggest, we are constrained because we're not like, we're not completely independent, obviously. I'm gonna get in trouble for saying that, but I mean, we are constrained in what we can and can't do. And so a lot of it is not having to convince here, it's having to convince down South, it's reaching out to Sage, it's reaching out to Westminster and saying, how do we all get on the same page so we can go in the same direction? Um, because we just can't, go our own way it's just impossible and that's something I've learned now over 10 months um, we have to go together do you think this will just impact on those problems then if I say this but do you think different decisions would have been taken in an independent Scotland with the first minister that you have seen up close and personal uh, yes definitely so do you think our <laughs> outcomes would have been different <laughs> um, I think so I mean I think just from style of leadership I mean I think, yes, I think, you know, we would have, we could have hopefully been more like a Norway or a Denmark than rather than right now, I think. Um, I mean, already, if you look at the charts and you look at the devolved nations, um, I mean, Scotland does come out in terms of lowest case numbers. Um, at the start, it did just as badly, I think, in March. But since then, in the summer, getting the numbers right low. Um, but I think there are constraints. I mean, anytime you want to put in a package, an economic package, be able to support hospitality because we have to shut it. It's a negotiation. 
at the start. Now I know they've finally put it in place. So that was a really stressful time of, can we actually shut hospitality though we thought that was maybe the right thing to do at the point from the advisory group perspective or, um, so yeah, so I think it is really hard because we're not getting the support that we require um, to be able to go the full way we want to go. And I think it's, again, a difference is, you know, it's hard because I think, you know, you saw in the summer the talks about elimination, zero COVID, you know, clear focus on getting numbers low. We never saw that clarity of vision from England. Um, and that's really hard because I think we really needed it from England and we're still not getting it. And I hope we will get it, but it might take a few more months. What do you think is going to happen over the next six months? So I think there's best case and worst case. That's all I can lay out a scenario. So best case, the vaccines are fantastic. We have them. They stop transmission. They roll them out, you know, starting with over 80s and over 70s, working back through the adult population. You know, Scotland's five and a half million people. So kind of working through getting enough doses in from Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna. And hopefully by the summer we have you know, quite a percentage of the population covered. And by the fall, you know, we're in a strong position going into next winter and and can start, you know, in the summer to have some of our normality back because we have broad immunity and protection from SARS-CoV-2. So that's kind of best case that the vaccines help us get out of this pit over the next kind of six months as they rolled out. We'll be under different levels of restrictions um, because the hospitalization issue is still one, but there's a way through it. And also, I know there's now trials starting in children. So if the vaccines can be used in kids, even better. That means we can vaccinate children. We can vaccinate teachers, get schools back. So there's a path. That's kind of best case. Worst case is we are doing these vaccines, and then we either realize they don't offer immunity past six months or a year. So we have to have repeated vaccinations, and that's a major enterprise. Or we realize that actually they don't stop infection. They just stop you getting severe disease, which of course will is fine. It helps, but it won't help suppress because people will still transmit, which means you need more restrictions. Or, and this is, I think, the most thing, I'm going to be called Dr. Doom for saying this, like the most worrying thing, um, which I think is that we get a new variant or a new strain from South Africa. We know there's one, Nigeria, Brazil, Japan. And this, our vaccines don't work against this one because we're kind of then back to square one. This is kind of the scientific worst case. So we va- we start vaccinating, we protect people, and all of a sudden we have a new virus because it would just be like a new virus because our vaccines wouldn't work against it and people would be susceptible. And I think then vaccine manufacturers, it'd almost be a cat and mouse game. They'd have to race to kind of remanufacture, which I think they think they, they can do because the mutations aren't major. There are you know, three or four mutations, but that would mean revaccinating using that new one before a new variant or strain came in. So in a way it becomes kind of like this constant chasing uh, which would just be a nightmare scenario. And so that's why that's one of the reasons I've been pushing so hard for border restrictions and for travel, because going back to the point of Taiwan, I mean, you want to stop these new variants or, you know, new strains from coming into the country in the first place. And to do that, you have to have checks at your airports, your ports, your borders, getting people to isolate, testing, sequencing, so that we don't have that situation. Because I think that would be a nightmare to vaccinate everyone, to be in a great position in the fall, to think we've done this, and all of a sudden to have a new strain come in and then be back to square zero and then be back in lockdown next winter. So I think we have to think about worst case and work back from that so we don't have worst case. It's not being Dr. Doom, it's saying we don't want to be there. How do we avoid that so we end up in the better position? Oh, (laughs) I suppose the other question for me in all of that is, is this the big one? Have have we faced the biggest thing we're going to face? I think for um, most of us, this will be the big one. And it's not because 
of the fatality rate, it's actually because this one kind of fell between stones. And I think that's why it was so dangerous. If this had been like a MERS event um, and a third of people died, young people, kids, anyone, every country would have gone into full alarm mode, right? Because there's no way they could have said to their publics, I'm really sorry, a third of your kids are going to die. Or, you know, look around you, one of you is not going to be here in the next six months, right? Like, they could never have done that. And so, in a way, because this virus falls between so many things, because of the asymptomatic spread, which we didn't see with SARS and MERS, which is people can feel really healthy and be traveling around and infecting others. I mean, it's like the perfect viral vector because you have such random outcomes. We know it's, of course, a gradient with age and with health issues, but we also know there's like 25-year-olds, one might die of it, one might be asymptomatic. You have 80-year-olds, one might die of it, one is actually having mild symptoms and is better. I mean, it's so random. So I think that is why I think it's the big one, because it's kind of like the ultimate test of solidarity and community and humanity, because we don't know how it will affect each of us. And what it's led to is kind of very paralyzing societal debates and anti-lockdown protests and is 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 it a case-demic? And if there are cases, does it lead to actually deaths? And can we accept a certain level of infection to get to herd immunity naturally? And, oh, it only kills, you know, 0.5% of people or 1% of people. So what's the big deal? Kind of really circular and um, unhelpful debates where I think that's why I think it's the big one, because we're so muddled and where we're going because of the diversity of voices, because of where it sits, where I think if it had been like an Ebola event, which kills 70% of people untreated, I mean, no, we wouldn't have had those debates. Everyone would have said, like, stay in your homes. We're going to aggressively go after it. We're going to get rid of it because we can't live with it. And I think this debate of can we live with SARS-CoV-2 circulating in the community or can we not, it's why we're in this muddled state where we wouldn't have that with a virus that was either, let's say, like a common cold coronavirus, then we would have just lived with it because we have colds. If it had been you know, less, let's say, fatal than flu, we would have lived with it. Or if it had been so severe, there's no way we could have lived with it. But this kind of COVID-19, we can sort of live with it at low levels, but we can't live with it with high levels. But we know it's so infectious that it will keep spreading. And so we get stuck in these lockdown reactive cycles. It's kind of almost the worst of all paths. I don't think we'll ever go through something this horrible again, because hopefully in the next one, the virus won't be like so tricky and sitting in this kind of middle ground, if that makes sense. Well, I'm going to try and take something positive from that. I suppose the um, I want to end on a more positive note anyway, I guess. I noticed that Nigella Lawson replied to you on Twitter today about one of her cake recipes. And I guess that's been one of the nice things about lockdown, that we have made new connections with people and we've been, people have been sharing things like recipes or hobbies and things. Can you take anything positive out of this experience? Obviously, other than a connection with Nigella Lawson. I know I I am um, I'm such a fan of hers and I I just love it because my my Twitter feed is feels like doom sometimes right like new variants and new sequencing and like there's a new flu thing happening in Mongolia and you're like that's just what we need and then all of a sudden you see like a beautiful pomegranate cake and I was like that just makes life better that's what we have to keep coming back to which is like the things that bring us joy and happiness and we know Nigella Lawson brings us all joy and happiness and 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 really nice food um, yeah I think you know what's I've been struck by is how many people, especially like in Scotland, have been, well, two things, one personal, one general, personally, like how welcoming they've been of me. I mean, I'm a foreigner. Um, I don't have a Scottish accent. I'm new here. Um, But how warmly I've been welcomed and how much I've been made to feel like a Scot and a new Scot, as they call it. And I just, it's been overwhelming um, to experience that and to feel like that I'm part of the community and I'm here. And 
that's been overriding kind of the feeling I've had more than the kind of loud social media voices of asking me to go back to, to Florida or whatever it is. I mean, it's much more positive. And I just think, and that's what I think a lot of my friends abroad have noticed and been like, wow, Scotland's really embraced you and, 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 and how warm and nice feeling it is as someone being an immigrant. Um, I think the other thing is the community that compliance has been so good. If I look around at the people who are not complying, it's not because and again, it's a vast majority are not complying because they don't want to, it's because they can't either because they're living in crowded housing or because of let's say difficult family circumstances or because of their jobs. Um, it's been much more circumstance. And I think the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. They trust that, you know, what, what is happening is correct. It really kind of come together as community. So the strong sense of community, you know, the restaurants that have kind of converted themselves into making food and helping out those who are struggling um, with hunger. I mean, this strong sense of community and support, I think has just been so positive. And I think no one could have expected the levels of compliance that we saw. Even now we're in another kind of very strict stay at home lockdown and compliance is really good considering where we are. And I think we should give much more credit to people for pulling together, especially young people, you know, children, kind of the strength they've showed through this crisis than, than maybe we do in the anecdotal reports of the house party here or the house party there, which I think are more rare than we, than we imagine. What have you learned about yourself, Devi? I mean, I think the first thing is um, that I'm stronger than I thought I was, that I'm really, um, that I'm, I'm quite kind of happy to say what I think, even if I take the backlash for it, I just brace myself. So I had a piece yesterday in The Guardian on schools and schools are so polarizing and their voices shouting in all directions. Um, but I just said what I think. I knew I would get a backlash for it and I braced myself. So I think kind of learning to kind of hold your ground and to be strong and kind of not to be shouted down and just kind of to be calm and collected. So I think that, um, and I think, you know, that we're all stronger than we think. Um, the second thing is I really miss socializing. Um, I really miss actually seeing people and going to concerts and sports matches and going out to crowded bars and restaurants and um, Christmas lunches and all the stuff that kind of, I guess, was normal in the past. And I just crave it now. I just crave human contact and seeing others and kind of hugging people, um, which I never thought about, obviously, in the past. But I really, really miss that. And I'm going to I think that's the thing I'm going to look forward to the most is just being around other humans and being in close contact with them, not having to distance being able to see my friends and grab them for a hug when I see them and not have to stay apart or, you know, seeing friends now who are struggling and crying and, you know, and you're walking with them outside and they're far apart and you can't kind of in any way physically um, make comfort them. So, yeah. So I think I've realized that I've missed that more than I thought I would, but I never thought about that this is what happened in the past. So that we would be distancing for so long. So maybe everyone feels that way. As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.